Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Struggle Creates Strength. Struggle Creates Strength is a mental health platform exemplifying that everyone has a story. No two stories are the same, but every story has the potential to help someone else. On today's episode, we have a very special guest and her name is Grace Graham. Grace has encountered a lot of different mental health struggles throughout her life, but some of them have even stemmed most recently due to COVID. Grace has encountered physical abuse, verbal abuse, has been in the hospital due to self-harm and as well as suicidal attempts and suicidal behaviors. She is a very strong individual and definitely has a story that you need to hear. I hope everyone enjoys and here's Grace's story. Hi Grace, how's it going? Hi. There it is. <laughs> how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for obviously coming on the podcast. I'm super excited and Obviously, we've Absolutely. kept in touch for the past little while and always yeah. keep having little discussions. And finally, we actually get to connect and do the podcast. So I'm super excited. And I'm super excited to be here and to help you out and help anyone else out. I'm super pumped. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. So we might as well kind of just jump right into it. And if you want to obviously start sharing your story and kind of explain who Grace Graham really is. Okay, for sure. Um, so I wrote down a bunch of little notes just so I could stay on track. So if you see me looking down, that's why. Um, so I guess from like when I was conceived, I have um, through both sides of my family, I have a predisposition to bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, um, alcoholism, drug addiction, and... Um, a lot of anger management issues on both sides. Mm -hmm. So there's our, I'm just kind of like a big melting pot of all this really great stuff. Um, and kind of since day one, I had a bit like an absent father. Um, he, I met him, I don't even, I think the first time I remember meeting him, I was like 10 or 11. That's like the first time I ever remember actually seeing him. And then the first time I ever went to his house, my mom and I drove from BC to California. So that was really weird, but mm -hmm. we'll get to that later. Um, so while my father was absent, my mom was in this relationship with this guy for nine years, I think. And he was incredibly abusive to my mom and I. Um, to my mom, it was more physical mm -hmm. and sexual abuse. And for me, it was emotional and verbal. So I spent most of my childhood locked in my room eating steamed broccoli and shaken baked chicken, and I will never eat either of those ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she finally got out of the relationship. I learned this when I was older, obviously, it's not something you tell an 11-year-old child, but... Mm -hmm. When I was older, I found out that the re one of the reasons why she stayed was because he always threatened he was taking her medication. And when he was high, he would always um, threaten to like steal me away and like leave with me. And like that she'd never see me again if she, um, she ever left him. So that's why she stayed. One of the reasons, my mom and I don't really talk about it that much anymore though, just cause it brings up a lot of trauma and triggers that we don't really want to deal with. Yeah, for sure. Um, and after about six months after she left, I developed my first actual diagnosis of separation anxiety from my mom. And that was the first time that I 
actually went to a doctor and went to a therapist and got counseling and all that great stuff. Um, it was really bad. I remember the first time I ever actually had a sleepover at someone's house. That was a friend. I think I was 13 or 14 years old. Wow. Like that was the first time I could actually sleep over. And like my mom would go out on the weekends with her friends and she like, I would go stay at my grandma's house and I couldn't even sleep over at my grandma's house. My mom would have to come in in the middle of the night when she was done mm -hmm. and come pick me up. And I'd always have to call her every like hour. And if she left to go anywhere, I would just cry and cry and cry. And it was just, it was bad. I got over that eventually though. <laughs> um, then I went to Central Middle School and that's when I started experiencing a lot of bullying. Um, it, of course, it just started at like just people being stupid, like we're oh, ugly, whoa, whoa, and I'm sitting here like, okay, like <laughs> that's the best you've got. <laughs> um, but then it got really bad in seventh grade. Um, these particular boys just loved to, there was like this one group of girls who were a year older than me and then this group of boys and they were kind of associated. And the girls would, I know there was about like five Facebook pages made dedicated to how much people wanted me to die. And like um, this one particular guy, I have a permanently bruised tailbone because we were in art class and the floors of our school were cement. Mm -hmm. um, and he went to go like pull the chair underneath from out from underneath me when I went to go sit down and I slammed on the ground really hard. And then not even half an hour later, he pushed me on a flight of stairs. Oh my God. And school did nothing. This is the middle school that I went to. I won't name it, but, um, I guess I already did actually, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but, um, they did absolutely nothing. They were just like, there's nothing we can do. You just get over it. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, buddy literally shoved me down a flight of stairs. You're not, you're not going to do anything about it. Um, and that was actually the year, I don't know if you recall, but, um, the Amanda Todd situation where yeah. that girl in Vancouver, I think made that video and then committed suicide. Um, and I had never really thought about suicide until that video and until that situation. And then everyone in my school started calling me the Amanda Todd of Victoria and like saying like, oh, it should have been you, not her, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I actually attempted suicide. Um, it did not work because I had no idea what I was doing, but I tried to hang myself in my school bathroom, but the railing I was trying to use was too short. I was trying to like sit on the ground. Um, and it wasn't obviously wasn't working. And then I just gave up and went home. Um, and then I transferred schools in grade eight for a dance program and that was but my mental health had kind of started going downhill that's when i started feeling like the intense um symptoms of depression and i started feeling a different kind of anxiety not so much separation but more just like overthinking what everyone's thinking about me and worrying so much about everyone else and not myself mm -hmm. um, and then one of my best childhood friends passed away um, in mid-October, end of October in eighth grade. And that really took a toll on me because he was one of the most important people in my life. His whole family just still means the world to me today. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of sent me downhill. Um, that's when I started like idealizing death and like, like this is going to sound like messed up, like 
like that's that seems like a good idea for me and like mm-hmm. this seems like the right place the right place to be and like the right path to take that's when I started self-harming really bad on my wrists and my thighs um I did it at school multiple times which is really bad mm-hmm. um I got sent to the counselor actually once because they caught me doing it um and that was my first experience with sexual assault as well um so that kind of was when I started to realize like oh boys are starting to look at me differently like this is when it's disgusting that women or girls are getting sexualized in eighth grade probably younger now but at that time that it was just crazy to me to think like oh like people are just like staring at me differently people are looking at me differently and I definitely played into it at first um I would you know my friends and I were in the dance program and we would walk to the bathroom in our like little shorts and crop tops and just be like, oops, we're walking by the boys. And <laughs> I really played into it because I thought that was the only way to get people to like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then that's also when Ask FM became a thing and <laughs> that ruined my life. <laughs> um, and then grade nine, I transferred schools again um, for the dance program because I wasn't really advancing in the dance program that I was in before. So I went to a different one and I had known the teacher prior. I didn't necessarily experience bullying in grade nine. I more or less just experienced social isolation. I didn't really fit in with anyone there. There was a big group of people who were like the athletic kids and I didn't really fit in there. And then the dance kids, they had all kind of grown up at the same studio. So I didn't really fit in there either. And then it was just kind of like I was by myself. I had friends from different friend groups, but mm. I had no group to kind of hang out with. Yeah. So I spent a lot of breaks, a lot of lunches by myself, um, a lot of lunches in this one teacher's um, room, actually. I seemed to bond with English teachers really well. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, grade nine was actually the first time I had gotten hospitalized for a suicide attempt because I had actually... Um, attempted. I remember one day, I can't remember what happened that day, but it was just a really bad day. I think I got into a fight with somebody and I had just been super overwhelmed and just couldn't take it anymore. And I just continued to idealize death. And I was like, this is kind of the end of the road for me. Like I'm, I'm sick of it. Like I can't keep doing this. Um, so at school, at lunch, um, there's an old, like my school's right by a highway and there's an overpass right by the highway. And Mm -hmm. my biggest thing was that if I were to ever commit suicide, I wanted it to look like an accident. I didn't want it to look like I killed myself. I wanted it to look like, you know, an accident. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to go, I I, I wanted to go out that way, but I didn't want people to know I went out that way, if that makes sense. So I went to the overpass and I climbed onto the other side of the overpass. And what I didn't know was that there was like a patrol counselor, just ca- like patrolling the area, just for looking for kids like smoking or doing stupid stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And she found me on the other side and she came and grabbed me. And then I just burst into tears. I like collapsed into her arms and she took me to the um, counselor's office and they took me to the hospital. And then my mom met me there. And then I had gotten, I actually have my old hospital records. Hang on one quick sec here. This. 
was on Valentine's Day too. So it was really uh-huh. fun. Um, yeah, so that was my diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And I got put on 30 milligrams of Prozac and I hated it. <laughs> I hated Prozac, but I stayed on it. And then I ended up moving to California um, just because I wanted to change it up. I obviously was very unhappy in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So I moved in with my dad and I had been visiting my dad every summer and alternating Christmases since I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, so I, I kind of like knew but I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, but I ended up really not getting along with either of them the first time around. Um, it was just, and like disclaimer, I do, like I have been in touch with both my stepmom, my dad, not so much, but we're all on good terms now. Um, and mm-hmm. just wanted to, I'm not like talking bad on them or anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I moved there and I just didn't get along with them. I, we were constantly fighting. I was, you know, really not allowed to do anything. It was always a battle for anything to happen. Cleaning, it was a battle. Um, You know, being able to go out and hang out with my friends was a battle. And so I lasted a semester there. And then I moved home back to Victoria. (laughs) And then I went to a different school and this school Like this was probably the worst experience with bullying and anything like that, that I've ever experienced. Um, Again, the school did nothing. Um, Ask FM was at an all time surge, I guess you could say. (laughs) Um, I started getting, as soon as, before I even transferred, I got messages like, you stupid B word, why are you coming here? Like, blah, blah, no one wants you here. And I was like, you never it's all anonymous. So it didn't phase me at first. And then I started going there. I made my group of friends. I was a really, really, really outgoing kid. And I had, I, nothing could phase me. Like I could wear whatever I wanted. I could say whatever I wanted and it didn't phase me. And I think that intimidated people or annoyed people depending on the person, but I was very much unapologetically myself. And I think that stems from the ADHD because I was just very, very, very outgoing and loud and rambunctious and very impulsive. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people at that school didn't like that. And then again, just a lot of Ask FM hates people telling me that they were going to beat my ass and like that I didn't deserve to live anymore and stuff like that. And that's when it started getting pretty heavy for me. And then there was a page dedicated, it was like, my school's confessions mm-hmm. and I'm not going to say the name of the school, but, um, it was basically, it was intended for people to just like send in anonymous things like, Oh, so-and-so hooked up or like, Oh, this teacher's hot, which is like, is really no one's business anyways, but it's high school. Mm-hmm. And it turned into a Grace Graham hate page. A lot of it was just like, like, I want to beat the fuck out of Grace Graham. I want to like Grace Graham should die. Like I want Grace Graham to kill herself, blah, blah. And then, Um, there was a video that was posted in a group chat of me in the shower and I wanted it gone. It was not consensual at all. Mm -hmm. One of my girlfriends, I was, again, like I was a very weird kid. I was being silly in the shower. I was like dancing or something. And she took a video of me and sent it 
to a couple girlfriends, but she saved the video. And then I can't remember if it was intentional or not, but she sent it to this group chat with about 60 people, half of which were guys from schools all over the city. And I found out um, through like a bunch of people sent me screenshots of it. So I went to my school counselor. I was like, what can I do about this? And they're like, well, the only thing you can do is get her charged. I was like, I don't want to get her charged. I just want the video gone. Um, and then I got a lot of flack for that. A lot of people were calling me a snitch and like saying how dramatic I was and how annoying I was and blah, blah. I was like, there's a video of me naked going around the city. You think I'm just going to sit there and be like, oh, okay, for sure. <laughs> and then um, also in grade 10, that was my second experience with sexual assault. Um, it was at a, my really good friend's birthday party. And I felt like I, I mean, I wasn't a huge drinker at this time. I didn't actually start drinking, drinking until after I graduated. Mm -hmm. But um, it was maybe like my third time ever getting drunk. And by getting drunk, I meant like six Pompeys <laughs> getting drunk. <laughs> but I felt very safe and comfortable. I knew everyone that she was inviting. So my best friend, Jordan and I, we were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get drunk tonight. Like we're in this together. And I ended up blacking out and passing out. And I woke up to someone on top of me and my clothes were gone and the door to the bedroom wouldn't lock. I remember. And I remember looking and someone was sitting on the inside of the room, blocking the door so no one could come in. Um, but that, like, I thought I was dreaming. And then the next day I woke up and it was all over like six people's Snapchat stories. So oh, wow. that's kind of how I found out that I had been sexually assaulted. Um, and then again, I, I didn't tell anyone, I didn't want him charged. I didn't want anything to do with that. But then everyone was calling me a liar and saying like, oh, you wanted it. You wanted it. I was like, I was sleeping. Like, yeah. I, I was sleeping. Um, and then, so grade 10 was my second hospitalization. Um, I, it was lunchtime and I was just, this was after the video had leaked. This was after the sexual assault. This was after everything. And I, again, just felt very fed up. I was like, okay, like didn't work this time. And clearly, you know, only bad things keep happening. So I, I really, I just really just want to be done. So I, my next plan was, I was basically just going to, walk across the highway or run across the highway. And that was kind of my plan. Cause again, I wanted it to look like an accident. So I walked mm -hmm. all the way down to the highway and before I could step, I was like very obviously like crying and stuff. And mm -hmm. someone came and grabbed me and took me back to the school. And then again, I got brought to the hospital and I was in the hospital for four days. And then they changed my diagnosis from MDD to dysthymia, which is a prolonged, uh, time frame of mild to moderate depression and ADHD. So I got up my dose of Prozac to 40 milligrams, and then I got put on Ritalin as well. And mm. I hated both of them. <laughs> I felt like a zombie. I wasn't depressed, but I had no emotion. Um, I wasn't me and I hated it, but I was like, maybe this will help me in the long run. So I stuck on it. And then I ended up moving back to California again. I had talked to my dad. I had talked to my stepmom. My mom had been offered this amazing opportunity overseas. Um, so I was like, okay, my mom's going to do that. I'm 15 years old, 16. I, you know, 
don't really want to be living on my own yet. So I'm yeah. going to just make it work with my dad again. And then the bullying stopped in high school. But then I started to experience the verbal abuse from my parents. And it was, again, I, I blocked a lot of this out. So if I'm pausing, it's because I'm trying to um, recollect what happened. Absolutely. But it was basically just like, I, I was never allowed to do anything. And I know like as a teenager, your parents are going to be protective, but um, a lot like there's only two people's houses that I could go to. Um, and I spent a lot of time babysitting. I remember in the summer, I really wanted to dance and I, or no, sorry, I didn't want to dance. I wanted to do cheerleading because they wouldn't let me dance because it was too far out of the way. And I wasn't allowed to do cheerleading because I had to stay home and watch the kids every single day of the summer from 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. I was babysitting every single day. And that obviously, I don't know if I'd mentioned this before, but dance was and still continues to be one of the most effective coping mechanisms for me, um, especially when my best friend passed away in eighth grade, the only, like I couldn't go to school for like a month. The only place that I could go was dance class. And when I moved in with my dad, I made it very clear. I, the only thing that I ask is that I can dance. And I found a studio that I really liked that worked with my school schedule, but it was a little bit, it was maybe like 20, 30 minutes away. And it was too big of an inconvenience to take me there. So I didn't get to dance which really that broke my heart. And then I didn't get to do cheerleading, which broke my heart. Um, and I remember one instance in grade 12, I, I, at this point in time, I really wanted to go to school in the States. My dream school was UCLA, but I wasn't gonna pay $75,000 yeah. for tuition. So I was looking at options in Arizona and I was thinking U of A, but then uh, Grand Canyon University, they were doing like a recruitment trip. And so they came to our school and they basically were like, hey, we're having any grade 12 students that want to come check out the school. Um, we're doing a weekend campus tour. We'll leave Friday after school. You'll stay in the dorms. You'll get to like explore the campus, go to a football game, um, see the dorms, everything. They said, you don't need to bring any money. It's all paid for. You can just bring money if you want to like buy food that's not in the cafeteria. And I was like, this is awesome. I'm only going to miss a Monday of school. So I bring it up to my stepmom and I was like, Hey, this would be awesome. Can I please go? And she's like, you're not going to make it into college anyway. So I'm not going to let you get your hopes up. And it was just that kind of attitude all the time where I was irresponsible, but I was taking care of the kids. I was getting the best grades that I'd ever gotten in my life. I was getting a 96% AP calculus. Like who does that? I don't know how I did that. And um, I was excelling in school. I never, I had never snuck out in my life. I only had one boyfriend and I hung out with him once. Like I was pretty much every parent's dream child, but I still got treated like I was like a, just a horrible kid. Mm -hmm. And um, I had like tracking devices in my phone. They told me, and if I wasn't home, I remember there'd be lots of times where I'd be like, can I please go hang out with my two friends? We're going to go to the beach. 
and they'd be like, yeah. And then we'd leave at four. And then at 6 PM, my dad would call me, where are you? Come home. I didn't say you could go. I'm like, you just told me I could go. <laughs> so there's lots of stuff like that. And a lot of my friends who lived in California with me, like they can vouch for that. Um, again, I'm probably not tapping into how severe it really was. Cause I block a lot of that out. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's where the majority of my PTSD stems from. Um, I now I tense up really bad if I get yelled at or if I feel like I'm slightly being criticized because then I feel like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm the biggest screw up ever. Like I can't do anything right, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of how I was made to feel. Um, and then I got hospitalized again when I was in California in 11th grade. Um, I didn't fully, I wasn't, I didn't attempt suicide, but I was going to. But I reached out for help first. So what happened was we had, there's a week where these, um, this like mental health organization sent like suicide prevention people to the school to just kind of do presentations in class for a week. And then they had the gym open for anyone who need, needed to go talk. So I went and talked to them and I didn't think that I was going to get hospitalized. I thought I was just going to be talking to someone. And they basically were like, grab your stuff. Like we need to get you out of here we need to get you to a hospital and I was like oh crap here we go again <laughs> um so then my parents came to the school and I remember the whole time they were not loving they were not supportive they were like are you happy you're getting the attention you want are you happy you're finally like like we're finally listening Grace like blah blah like being very like just mocking me essentially mm -hmm. and I remember driving to the hospital my stepmom said um, are you going to jump out of the car on the highway or do I not have to lock the doors or something like that? And I was like, come on, really? And she took my phone away before I even got to the hospital. So like not my best friend didn't know where I was. My mom at this point had no idea where I was. My mom was still overseas at this point. Um, I couldn't call her. I couldn't text her. I couldn't use my stepmom's phone because my mom had a long distance number. And the only way I could reach her was Facebook. Um, so until I had already been admitted into emergency, that's when the hospital found a way to get in touch with my mom. And I remember I was sitting in the emergency room, just staring off into the corner yeah. and my parents were in the corner staring at me, basically saying like, just belittling me for being suicidal. Like they didn't believe that it was real. They thought I was doing it for attention. They were annoyed with me. They were pissed off. They're like, you're going to have to pay the hospital bill. You're going to have to do this. I was like, you don't, you're not letting me, like, they never let me get a job. So like, how do you expect me to pay for something if I don't have a job? Mm -hmm. um, and then I actually, it got so bad that I actually asked the nurse to make them leave. Um, so then they left. And then the next day I got transported to a facility and believe it or not, I really liked it there. <laughs> um, the facility was really nice. All the staff was really nice. I made some great friends. Um, actually, one of the other patients in the facility wrote me a little note that I still have to this day, and I read it sometimes, and it's really sweet. Um, but I stayed in the facility for six days. And, I mean, it did help in the in short term, but I knew that I was going to be going back home to that so mm -hmm. it was nice to get away. The fact that I enjoyed being in a psychiatric facility more than being in my own home says something. <laughs> um, 
And so in the facility, they have visiting hours. They have an hour at lunchtime. And then I think it's, can't remember if it's an hour or two hours at dinner time. And like, you're allowed to bring outside food for whoever you're visiting. My parents never visited me once. I had no visitors when I was there and I was there for six days. That's 12 opportunities for someone to come visit me. And I had no visitors. Yeah. Um, I was only allowed to talk to my mom. I didn't have my best friend's phone number memorized. So my mom was messaging my best friend. Um, but her mom wouldn't let her come visit me for some reason. I don't know why. Um, or maybe they just couldn't get out here. But like I said, I did make a lot of friends and the staff was amazing. And then eventually I got out and then I went and saw a psychiatrist a week later. And I remember my dad insisted on being in the room with me, but I asked if I could just talk to them by myself. And my dad was like, no, but he refused to let me be alone. So I kind of, I had to, make what I was going on seem like less than what it actually was because mm. I knew that if I had told everything to the psychiatrist, my dad who was listening would have just ripped me apart as soon as I got in the car. Yeah. Um, so then they actually diagnosed me with bipolar disorder, but that was a misdiagnosis because later on, actually about a month ago, I got re-diagnosed with ADHD and ADHD and bipolar look very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, but they didn't put me on medication. They kind of stopped me on all the medications that I was on um, just to kind of see how I would adjust. And then they were thinking about putting me on like mood stabilizers, but I never ended up doing it because I, the only experience I'd had with medication was negative. So I was like, I don't really want to be on medication and nothing ever followed up from that. I never went to therapy. My parents never let me go to therapy. Um, I never saw another psychiatrist after that. And then Everything else, basically, it was really bad at home. But other than that, I was just fighting to just graduate. And then as soon as I graduated, the day after I graduated, I moved back to BC. And I was kind of just on my own at that point. Um, I did make some, like some of my best friends were still my best friends today. Um, they still live in California. It was like the three of us, three girls. And they helped me a lot in the last months because it was just getting so bad. Um, and once I turned 18, I kind of was like, you can't tell me what to do anymore. So I just kind of <laughs> left whenever I wanted. I was like, what are you going to do? Kick me out? Like, <laughs> um, so then I moved back to BC and then I was actually doing really well. Um, but then that was when the third sexual assault happened and, and that really kind of set me over the edge again. But it was at this point where I was just kind of like, I've had enough of feeling depressed. So I literally just turned my emotions off. Anything bad that happened to me, I was just like, whatever, let it happen. Mm -hmm. And clearly not a healthy coping mechanism, but yeah. <laughs> in the moment, I was like, I, I physically cannot handle any more pain. So I just became numb. I just trained my body to just tune out any emotions. Um, so with that sexual assault, I was completely sober. I was friends with this one guy and I'd been over to his house a couple times and like nothing had ever happened. So I never thought anything was ever happened. I never gave any indication that I wanted anything to happen. And then I went over to his house one day and we were watching a movie and this guy had like six blankets on his bed. I was like, okay, first of all, who the who has six blankets <laughs> on their bed? 
<laughs> so I was in the corner. I was under the top blanket and I wasn't even touching him. Like I was, we weren't like, there was nothing leading up to like, oh, we're going to sleep together. There was nothing leading up to it. I gave no indication. Like I said, I thought he was my friend and he was mm-hmm. under a completely different blanket on the other side of the bed. There's probably like two feet of space between us. And then the next minute I'm on my stomach and like he ripped my pants and that was that. And then I just, once it was over, I just like got up and left and I didn't really realize what had happened until I was in the car the next morning. I remember <laughs> I, I drove my grandma to work every day and I think she, she was a little bit cranky that day. And I think that she was, she like snapped at me or something. And then I dropped her off and I just bawled my eyes out on the side of the road for like 20 minutes. And I called my mom, told her everything. Um, and then after that, I went and visited my mom in the Middle East and did some volunteer work there. And that was really good. It was so nice to be with my mom because I hadn't mm-hmm. seen my mom in well over a year at that point. Um, and that was crazy in itself. I experienced a lot of, I, you know, got tear gassed quite a few times. I had an M16 held to my body while I got patted down. Mm. I got strip searched in the airport. Um, But other than that, like it was one of the best trips I've ever been on. But that kind of contributed to my PTSD as well. I can only imagine what it's like for the people who live there. Um, Mm -hmm. I won't get into like the politics of anything of that because that's a whole different ballpark. (laughs) But um, I came back and then I met someone and we started dating and we dated for about two and a half years. And he was a really good guy. And again, I've talked to him after the breakup and there's no bad blood. There's no bad feelings with mm-hmm. him whatsoever. Um, I genuinely do wish him the best, but that being said, he was a horrible boyfriend. <laughs> um, he was very possessive and very obsessed with my self image. And I think what he wanted in a girlfriend was like a quiet little yes man type of girl who just kind of sat there and did whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. And I am not like that. I'm very independent. I have my own voice. I do what I want. And I also am very spiteful. So if someone says, you can't do this or you won't do this, then I will. And mm-hmm. same thing, like if someone says, don't do this, I will. If someone says, do it, I won't do it type <laughs> of thing. Um, we got into a lot of arguments because, and I I mean, I don't blame him. He was never really exposed to like mental illness or any mental health conversations or anything like that. So he never really understood what anxiety and ADHD and PTSD was. He just, he was that type of person that was like, just relax. Like anxiety is not real. And I'm like, oh boy, we have a lot to learn. (laughs) Um, And then it ended up getting so bad that, we broke up in February last year. It was a very, very, very messy breakup. And then my mental health plummeted right before quarantine. It got really bad again. Um, I couldn't get out of bed for weeks. I failed and I failed my whole second semester. Um, my first semester, I think I failed two classes because I just I had no motivation to go. Um, all second semester, I was just, I was drinking very heavily. I was in Saskatoon at this point and I was out every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, just getting really drunk, just getting distracting myself with like boys and attention and just trying to 
do everything I can to not feel the pain that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, I started self-harming again really bad. I had a lot of suicidal ideation. I didn't act on it, but at some points it did get to the extent where I'd be driving and those intrusive thoughts would come in. Like, what if you just like veered to the right a little bit and hit this pole or like, Mm -hmm. I remember there were several times recently, actually one of them too, was I'd be driving and those intrusive thoughts would be getting so loud that I would grip my steering wheel and just be like, just get home, just get home, like just get home. And I, it was to the point where if I did make it home, I would feel disappointed in myself. I'd be like, why didn't you just hit that ball? Why didn't you just drive into that wall? Why didn't you just jump off that bridge? Why didn't you just throw yourself into traffic? Like you're a coward. And obviously I, I didn't seek help with that because I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to accept that there was something wrong again. I really didn't want there to be anything wrong. I was trying to, you know, thrive after a breakup and be the best version of myself that I can be. Mm-hmm. But that was the worst version of myself. And my self-harm got really bad. And then quarantine hit and everything changed. I obviously, as everyone else did, I had a lot of time to think about myself and to think about, um, you know, why am I going down this path? Why am I allowing myself to do this? Um, So in May, I started to realize that things were not right. Like I, I knew they weren't right, but I started to really recognize and I was like, okay, I really need help. I'm going to be dead by the time I'm 21 if Mm -hmm. I don't get help right now. And I reached out to my school's counselor and kind of told them what was going on. And it was a very lengthy process, obviously with COVID and everything. Um, But I eventually started seeing a therapist every day. I had spoken with a couple psychiatrists. Um, And now, I'm doing a lot better than I was. I'm di- right now. I'm diagnosed um, generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, and ADHD. Um, so with that, how I describe it is, for ADHD, it's like imagine you're opening Internet Explorer, like the slowest internet browser ever, <laughs> and you have 50 tabs open, and it's everything is just loading, and nothing's working. You're trying to find this tab, but you're thinking about this tab and then this tab's lagging and this tab disappeared. Like it's just super messy. Um, And actually what I've started doing recently is when I have those moments where my brain literally shuts off for a minute, I'll just be like, hold on, I'm loading. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just say, I'm loading. Because with my ADHD, my brain just literally, I'll be mid-conversation, I'll just completely lose my train of thought and I'll just like, I can't talk for like, two minutes because I just don't remember what I was trying to say. I can't formulate sentences. Um, And then with my anxiety, how I describe it so I I can relate to people who don't necessarily feel anxiety is, you know, that feeling when you're walking down a flight of stairs and you think there's that last stair there, but it's, there's not a stair there. And you Mm -hmm. feel that like (gasps) right before you feel like you're falling. (laughs) It's that feeling, but constantly. And, um, Mine is, I have, I overthink a lot um, to the point where my thoughts get 
very intrusive, very negative. The overthinking is always negative thoughts. It's if one person says hi instead of hey, I'm like, they hate my guts. It's bad. Or like, um, I'll just be walking anywhere or driving somewhere and a random thought will pop in my head and then I'll be like, literally no one cares about you. Like, why are you even still here? No one cares about you. And it's, and then I start spiraling down that thought process and it's just turned into a big snowball effect. And, Mm -hmm. um, I get panic attacks quite frequently. I actually had one yesterday. That was really fun. (laughs) Um, and then the PTSD, that's kind of how I react in social situations. So like I said earlier, if someone gets even if someone criticizes me and criticizes me in the slightest way or gets a little bit upset with me, I just shut down. I um, am automatically like, they think I'm the worst person in the world. They think I'm a screw up. Um, they hate me, blah, blah, blah. Like, why can't I just do something right? I get nightmares quite frequently. Um, very, very vivid nightmares too. I actually have a notes um, section open in my phone of all the nightmares that I've had in the last like three months. And it's Mm -hmm. really weird. Um, if I'm touched in a certain way, I freeze, um, or I, again, I shut down a lot of my coping skills. I just tend to shut down and pretend like I can't feel anything, which again, is not healthy, but it's, uh, it's right now until I can really figure out more coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But as I, like, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm doing a lot better. It's one of those things that like mental illness is a, it's a chemical change in your brain. It's a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's not something that you can necessarily unlearn. If that makes sense. You just kind of learn to live with it. Yeah. And one thing that I actually haven't really brought up to anybody that I have gotten over recently was during quarantine, even though I was doing better with myself in terms of my mental health with anxiety and ADHD, I developed a pretty vicious eating disorder over quarantine. And it was, it started because right after I broken up with my ex, I lost a lot of weight. I have no idea how I lost like 10, 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I love looking like that. And then I like gained it all back eventually. And then I was really mad at myself and I get, I experience pretty severe body dysmorphia. I'll look at myself in the mirror after I have one thing to eat. And I think I look like I'm 250 pounds. And so I started really romanticizing and obsessing over how I looked in the morning when I hadn't eaten anything. And I was like, well, I want to look like that all the time. So then I just stopped eating <laughs> or I would drink like a boost, you know, it was like shakes, yeah, the meal yeah. replacement shakes. I drink like <laughs> two of those a day. Um, and then the, I kind of overcame that within the last month and a half, I've learned um, something called intuitive eating, which is you basically just listen to your body your body as, as a woman, my body fluctuates like seven to 10 pounds a month. That's just being a woman. Um, so recognizing that, recognizing like what time of the month it is, knowing that my, like kind of figuring out when my weight fluctuates and just listening to my body and giving it what it needs. If you, if I want a donut, I'm going to get a donut. If I want to eat a whole roll of raw cookie dough, 
I'll probably be really sick after, but I'm going <laughs> to do it. Like, um, just it's, it's obviously an uphill battle. Nothing with mental illness is comes easy or you learn easy, but I'm very happy that I overcame that mm-hmm. because that could have ended really badly. Um, but yeah, so that's basically it for my story. <laughs> Try yeah. to keep it short and sweet. <laughs> No, that's amazing. And I know for a fact that all the things that you touched on, I know for myself anyways, I related to so much of what you said. And that's just, it goes to show like what you want this to do and what like struggle creates strength kind of represents is obviously we've all struggled or we will struggle at some point. And it's just proving that you can grow and you can gain that strength to actually move forward and just live the life that you want to live. And I just know, like, it's so interesting to hear because for instance, one of the things that you brought up was when you're driving and you'd be gripping the steering wheel so tight, or you just think, Oh, what if I just veered off into this pole or veered (laughs) off, like drove straight into a wall, whatever it may be. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday about the exact same thing. And I had, another conversation with somebody like the day before and it's so many people that have struggled with mental health I think go through something like that and there's so Mm. many people that aren't speaking up about their mental health and to the extent that it is but I will guarantee you that probably I don't want to say exactly but probably like 50% of people that have struggled with mental health have thought those thoughts and have been driving in thought what if, what if I did this? And I'm not saying that they would ever do it, but it's just like the what if factor and the thought of it yeah. and the thought of um, suicide and the thought of obviously like self-harm. And just, cause I think what happens is so many people get to such a, kind of such a low point in their life. And when you struggle with severe mental health um, issues, if you will, I think that you almost fantasize the thought of death or just because for a lot of like for myself anyways I always found that uh or I kept having this one thought resonate through my mind and that was oh like I'm not good for people here I'm not Mm. I'm just hurting more people than I'm helping I'm I'm not Mm. worth it I like what's my purpose I don't think I have a purpose and I was just Mm. always being kind of judged on the fact of what I was doing in my life, like what school I was going to, what hockey team I was playing on, just where I was at in my life. And rather than just kind of like taking a step back and be like, Hey, you know what? I can do something good. I can help other people. I can just chat with people, be a good person. And like I always was, but at the same time, it's, you when you're struggling so much with mental health you never think about those positives you always think about the negatives and then as well as like you just said too is you overthink and you only overthink negative thoughts and i've always been the exact same way like i have i think i always will overthink situations i mean i handle it way better now but i Mm -hmm. think for myself anyways when i would be overthinking 100% every thought was so negative and there was never like 
you just you come up with the craziest stories and you're just sitting there like why am i thinking about all of this when in reality all they did say was hi instead of hey but it's like yeah (laughs) those intrusive thoughts those intrusive thoughts will really ruin your day yeah and like that's yeah exactly and that's especially in today's age where you have so much social media and you have like everyone it's so rare for people to pick up the phone and FaceTime someone or call someone. Everyone's always texting, Snapchat, Instagram message, whatever it may be. And yeah, like, and I honestly, I don't think that's, well, I just think that it hurts the way that we communicate so much because like, I know I've had this conversation hundreds of times and that's that you can't um, perceive someone's emotions through a screen because you you literally cannot like they could somebody it used to always happen with me and somebody would send me a snapchat of their face and they would look miserable and so and I would think that it was my fault and I'd be like oh my gosh what did I do and then I'd think and think and think and then I would like see them later and they were the happiest person and I was like what the heck and so I'd ask them they'd be like oh no like that was just my face like whatever and same with texting somebody can text you and they might seem like all mad or upset whatever but Mm. in reality that's not the case at all and that's why i think we kind of got to get back to phone calls facetime actually connecting with voice and with seeing people's emotions or at least hearing Mm. their emotions because Mm. we have veered one just for those that struggle with mental health to, especially to like extreme severities, it does Mm -hmm. not help at all. And the communication, like communication is huge and communication is the most important thing um, in my eyes anyways. And I think if we like, we need to do a way better job with how we communicate and obviously with stomping on the anxiety that comes along with it. And I think also, a really important thing. I mean, <laughs> so I've just gotten so fed up. I like anytime I think I'm going to start, for example, like if I make a new friend or I start talking to a new guy, it sometimes scares them away. <laughs> but <laughs> from the get go, I'm like, hey, just so you know, I've got pretty like raging anxiety. I overthink lots. So if you can just be honest with me then we're fine because mm-hmm. I'm going to take your high instead of Hey, with a heart as he's about to ghost me or he doesn't like me or I did something wrong or blah, blah, blah. Or like if, you know, a girlfriend is like, Oh, like we've had plans. She's like, Oh, just kidding. Like, I'm really not feeling it. I'm sitting here like, what the fuck did I do? What did yeah. I do? <laughs> and it, it's just a lot of it was um, like with my dad and stepmom, they were always mad at me. For some, for some reason, they were always mad at me. So mm-hmm. I I learned and I adapted to walk on eggshells around them. And that kind of carried over into my life. So I was almost too observant of um, I was too observant of how people talk and act and how they text and all that. So I would read into things way too much and I still do it. And then same with my ex-boyfriend, it was very much like 
you could you could very much tell when he was upset, like over text or over the phone. I'd be like, like babe, what's wrong? Nothing. Well, are you sure? Yeah. Is there anything I can help you with? Like, do you want to talk? No. Take like 45 minutes to get it out of him. And then, because I knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And then finally, when I got it out of him, he would be mad because I was pestering him. And I'm like, well, I know something's wrong. Like, what happened? (laughs) So I now, one of the things that I think I'll just always do, part of it is because I care about people, maybe a little bit too much. But (laughs) um, one of the things that I do, I read into things way too much because I'm so used to having to analyze what people are saying and like, is this really what they're saying? Or are they saying something else? Does this period here mean that they're mad and this not a heart or instead of smiley face here, does that mean that they're upset or they don't like me anymore? They don't want me in their life anymore. Like it's, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I was always the exact same way. Like it's so funny <laughs> that you said, like I relate to that 100% because that's exactly yeah. how I was. Um, in my past relationship as well like and and I mean I was I was on both ends of it though because I would one if I like you said if it's like one word answer or something you go oh my gosh what's wrong and then you try and hound them for long like a long time and either nothing actually is wrong or there is something and then it's like why did this take so long to get down to it and again that just refers back to communication and how important it actually is in relationships. Mm -hmm. And the, but I would actually be on the other end of it as well. And she would ask me what's wrong, like what's going on. And I would do the one word answers and I would say no. And then it would take her like an hour to (laughs) actually get down to the point where I would be like, okay, yeah, screw it. Like, I'm just going to tell you what's wrong, whatever. And for me anyways, that sucks knowing that I was on that end of it as well, because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, now I have the tools and now I have like the courage to just say like, yeah, something is wrong. Like I'm going to stand up. Mm-hmm. I think that was the biggest thing is I never had the confidence in myself and like to just fully stand up and just say what bothers me, what doesn't. And so mm-hmm. I think now if I was to put myself back in those shoes, if the second they say what's wrong, I'm just flat out. I'm honest. And I don't care yeah. if that affects you in a negative way, but this is how I feel. So I'm going to be flat out honest and mm-hmm. we're going to talk through it because that's how it should be. And I'm not going to make you question me for days and exactly. days asking what's wrong. I'm, and, still, yeah. I'm still trying to get to that point because um, it's actually kind of morbid. Um, I tend to use humor to cope with my trauma, like very dark humor, mm-hmm. um, which it's real. like a lot of people think I'm really funny, but I'm like, thanks. It's the trauma. Like <laughs> I'm not actually funny. I just have no other way to cope. So for me, I, I love helping people. And I feel like I, I mean, any of my friends that I've given advice to, like they can I'm not trying to like talk all high and yeah. right here, but I, I, feel like I do give really good advice. And I will give advice and I will talk to anyone for however long they need it, whatever they need to talk about. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to me, if someone sees that something's wrong with me, I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Like, I got it. And like, I could literally be sobbing, just sobbing. Or I could have a broken arm or, you know, I could have just, you know, some of the worst things can happen. And people are like, are you good? And I'm always just like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm chilling. 
or um, this is going to sound really morbid and I'm, I'm not, I'm not making a joke of suicide because it's not funny, but how I personally cope. And I only do this with like my friends who mm-hmm. know that I'm kidding, but if something bad happens, I'll just be like, Oh, I'm just going to go like eat myself off a bridge real quick, which is so bad. <laughs> but it's like, it's how I cope because it's like, yeah, it's kind of how I feel. I'm not actually going to do it, but here's a way to bring it up that I'm actually, you know, kind of sad mm-hmm. without being like, Oh, I'm sad. Cause my biggest thing is I don't ever want people to feel bad for me. I know right now where I'm at in my life now, I've been completely independent from both my parents since 2017. I like my apartment. I paid for myself, my car, I paid for myself, my school, I paid for myself. Um, I work two full-time jobs right now. I basically have full control of my life and I'm basically 40 living or I'm 21 (laughs) living like I'm 40. Yeah. I do my own taxes, um, make my own car payments, make my own like doctor's appointments, which is like pretty, you know, easy, but (laughs) all that stuff. And a lot of people that I talk to like, Oh my God, like I feel so bad for you. Don't feel bad for me. Like it's just the way it is. Like this is how my life is. And I'm, happy with it I'm doing really well I'm very well off now so yeah I just joke so I don't people don't actually feel bad for me and I like making people laugh so if I can make people laugh and kind of incorporate that as well I don't know yeah (laughs) but no I I used to always well I mean I still do the exact same thing and I think for a lot of people that have been suicidal or have encountered a lot of suicidal thoughts I think that is one of the easiest coping mechanisms is just and a way to make light of it, right? Is you just say, oh yeah, like I'm going to go do this and whatever. And then there is, I think sometimes for the people that know your story, they'll kind of sit there and they'll say, oh, like, and they'll just, you'll, they'll always give you this weird look and it's like, they're curious. Yeah. They're like, they're curious if this is just a joke or if you're being serious or if it's okay to talk about it or even like if it's okay for them to laugh and then it's like I always yeah like I always just say no like I'm making I'm making a joke you can laugh like yeah I actually uh, I um so I'm sure you know what TikTok is yeah so I made a TikTok a couple like a month ago and the audio was like it's okay. You can laugh. It's funny or something like that. And I was like mouthing that. And then the text was like, um, me, when I make a joke about my trauma and people get uncomfortable, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's funny. Like laugh, please. Yeah. laugh. <laughs> no, exactly. I know there's, yeah, I think, I think a lot, like definitely in some conversations. Yeah. You gotta, and especially some of the audience, you have to know your audience for starters. Exactly. And exactly. Because I think it's just almost like making these jokes and stuff is a way of normalizing it and just saying like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like this happened to me. We like, this is where I'm at. This is where I was. And this is where I'm at now. Like the fact that exactly. And I think just the fact that like you've encountered something and I've encountered something, it's like, yeah, we could joke about that and not in a way where it's, to the point of like it's kind of bad but to at least a point of where it's funny yeah exactly yeah Yeah, not making fun of it just making almost light of it and exactly keeping the topic in a sense normal um what would you kind of say 
has been your biggest helper or like your biggest tip of advice that you would actually give someone who is struggling or has gone through some of the same or potentially will struggle in the future? So for me, this is probably one of the most cliche quotes or sayings, but it's like, it's so true is that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to seek help. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I know, especially, um, I know like with men with like toxic masculinity and all that lovely stuff. (laughs) Um, a lot of, a lot of men are actually pretty mortified by the thought of mental illness and very like sheltered to it and closed off, but they like, they, but maybe, you know, they are struggling, but they don't do anything about it because it thinks they think it makes them weak. And that, that's not just men. It can be women as well. But I've noticed that particularly with men and just with anyone, like it's really, it's okay to not be okay. You don't have to be fine all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like I, cause I've been in that position hearing some of the same people say all the time, it's going to get better. Like it'll be fine. It doesn't matter when you're in that mindset. It doesn't matter what it's going to be like afterwards because when I'm in that mindset and when you're in that mindset, that's that it consumes you. All you can think about is just, I want to die. I don't deserve to live anymore. No one likes me. Like I, I'm done anything. It just consumes you and you can't pull out of it. Mm-hmm. So my biggest thing is reminding myself that it's okay to not be okay. This is, this is okay. I recognize that I need help. And also in that moment, don't, this is going to sound kind of controversial. I try to just let the feelings pass. So I, I don't, when I do feel an attack coming on, or I do feel like a wave of depression coming on or like a random energy spurt from the ADHD, um, I don't try to hide it. I just let it pass because I've learned that I've learned very personally that suppressing your emotions and bottling it up will lead to an explosion and Mm -hmm. those explosions are usually when you end up do doing something stupid yeah so if you you know you're have one day where you're just feeling really depressed i think it's also really good to have a go-to person to go to Mm -hmm. and you know for anyone who is listening if they don't have a go-to person i'm sure you or i are happy to even if they don't know us. I'm very happy to be someone's go-to person because yeah. I love making people feel safe and helping people feel better. And I'm mm-hmm. sure you feel the same. Absolutely. Um, but having that go-to person that you don't even necessarily have to tell them what's wrong, but just being like, Hey, I'm kind of having a rough day. Um, can you just be on standby for me in case something happens and just having that one person that you trust mm-hmm. and then also do the things that, you're like, listen to your body. If you're having a day where you're really depressed and all you want to do is lay in bed, then just lay in bed. And one thing that, again, with like breaking the stigma and normalizing mental health is like, in terms of like school and work, if you, you know, if you're sick, if you have a cold, you can miss work and you can miss school, no problem. But if you need a mental health day, it's like, oh, just push through, come in. But Mm. people don't realize how debilitating mental health can actually be absolutely um and there have been days where i've tried to push through and i screw up i come in late i you know don't perform i perform at like 20 percent at my job Mm -hmm. so having obviously it's 
tough for employers to kind of normalize that. But um, same with school, just being like, you know what, I'm overwhelmed, I'm depressed, I'm stressed out, I just need a day to just debrief. Absolutely. And those are so important, even if you don't struggle with a specific mental illness, even if you just struggle with everyday life, um, you know, just taking a day, an hour, three hours, going for a drive by yourself, going to get yourself ice cream, going into, you know, Walmart or Target or something and just zoning out wherever you need to go, driving to the beach, driving to your spot, laying in bed, watching Netflix, like whatever your body tells you you need, you should just listen to it. Yeah. For sure. If that makes sense. No, hundred percent. And again, like I said, having that one person that you do feel safe coming to, um, if you start to, you know, feel unsafe, I know in those moments, it's really hard to reach out and tell someone that you're not feeling safe because all you want to do is that one thing that won't leave your mind, that one thing that little voice won't shut up about. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of strength to do it. But the first time you do it, the first time you reach out to someone and you say, um, I need help. Can you stay on the phone with me? Like, for example, last night, I, yesterday I had a really bad panic attack. I had a really bad day at work. I came home. I was crying a lot. I just, I called one of my girlfriends and I was like, Hey, I don't really want to talk about it, but I'm just having a really bad day. I don't feel safe. Can you please just stay on the phone with me until I fall asleep? Mm-hmm. And it was as simple as that. And that made me feel so much better. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I think just having that one person that you can go to is so important. And I know I've had a few conversations about this as well Is it's really important to have someone that isn't a professional. Um, exactly. I mean, I am the biggest advocate for get like seeking professional help and having a professional that you can go to. But I also 100% believe that it's so important to have at least one person that you know, you can run to at any time of distress, whether you are, like it's something so, so small, but it's kind of bothering you or whether it's something like huge and it's at a time when you can't go see your psychiatrist or counselor or any form of professional help, that's when you Mm -hmm. should, obviously it's beneficial to have that one other person. And typically it's either a friend or a parent or just anyone that you're close with. I think it's Mm -hmm. just super, super important to have that one person. And you said um, it very well, is that you and myself are Mm -hmm. more than willing to help anyone or have a conversation with anyone. Just be open to people obviously finding the courage and being vulnerable about Mm -hmm. their mental health and where they're at. So where could somebody kind of reach out to you or find you? Um, My main like social media platform that I use is Instagram. Yeah. So it can reach out through Instagram. Um, if it's somebody that, you know, maybe I haven't talked to, but I have on like Snapchat or they have my number, they're more than welcome to reach out through there. Like Mm -hmm. really any way that someone can find a way to message me, I'm will always answer. Sometimes it takes me a little while because (laughs) I'm work two full-time jobs, but I will always make time for somebody if they need it. Yeah, for sure. And I guess one last thing before we kind of wrap it up is how do you, like, are you still attending school while working these two full-time jobs? No. So I took this semester off because, Mm -hmm. well, it was originally because of COVID because 
my ADHD brain could not handle online school. <laughs> I would do everything but school. Um, but, um, and also prior to this year, I was very, very financially unstable because I was, I was working basically a full-time job while going to school. And it got to the point where I had to choose work over school. Mm -hmm. Um, so then I decided to take the semester off to just make as much money as I could work as much as I could. And then I'll be going back in January. Yeah. That's awesome. It's funny. I'm actually in school for psychology. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So see, it is very valuable um, to reach out to you. And yes. Yeah. Obviously, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to Struggle Create Strength podcast. You have definitely changed my life. And I know for a fact that you have changed a lot of other people's lives and will continue to do so. And I thank cannot you. wait to have kind of the world reach out to you and for that matter I hope that everyone does reach out and is open and shows you the support that you deserve thank mm -hmm. you for having me on I really appreciate it of and course. I do hope that my story and my advice can even just help one person that would mean the world to me absolutely that's so awesome well thank you very much and we thank will you. see you soon I'm sure yes have yeah. a nice day yeah you too Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Struggle Creates Strength. Grace showed an immense amount of courage today by speaking up and sharing her story. If you feel inspired and you want to come on the podcast or even just talk to me and share your story, you're more than welcome to reach me at Struggle Creates Strength on both Instagram and Facebook, or you're more than welcome to send me an email off of my website at strugglecreatestrength.com. Just remember that everyone has a story, no two stories are the same, but every story has the potential to help someone else out. If you want to reach out to Grace and show her the support that she deserves, feel free. Her Instagram is just Grace Graham. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. But I'm weak, and